Well, if you have your Bibles now, and I hope you do, I encourage you to turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 1. This morning we are in Mark 1, studying verses 12 and 13. The message this morning is titled, Victory Over Temptation. And to set the stage for the context, I want to travel back just a little bit and begin our reading in verse 9. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, in January of 2022, many of you will remember this if you were at Living Hope at that time. I traveled with Heart Cry Missionary Society to Italy for a short-term mission trip. And while in Italy, we briefly stopped in Rome and visited the Roman Colosseum. The Colosseum in Rome. Now, I've always had mixed emotions about the Colosseum. I acknowledge that it is an architectural masterpiece. But it is not something I've ever desired to see or to celebrate. Simply because of the fact of the atrocities that have taken place against my people in that very space. Against God's people. But there I was standing in front of that massive structure and I was flooded with all kinds of emotions. Imagine with me for a moment this scenario, this situation, this scene, if you will. Imagine if you were one of those Christians who lived in Rome during the first century and you were sentenced to death because of your faith in Jesus. Imagine after being sentenced to death, you're walking up to the Colosseum, bound by chains at your wrist and at your ankles, knowing that you'll never see your children again in this life. Knowing that you'll never hold your spouse's hand again in this life. Knowing that you'll never sit around a campfire with your friends again in this life. Imagine being escorted through the inner chambers of the Colosseum and As you're being ushered along by the guards, you catch the scent and the sound of a lion. And you, upon making contact with this being, you you hear the jeers of the soldiers. They say, you're going to be a good snack for this lion in just a few minutes. Imagine hearing some of your friends whispering moments after this when the guards set you alone and they just sort of sit around as a perimeter around you. Imagine hearing your friends saying, did you hear that the guards 
are offering our pardon if we will simply bow our knee to Nero? Imagine watching as some of your friends begin to one by one deny Christ. Take the offer to save their own life. Imagine standing at the gate, feet from the arena, standing at the gate, waiting to be released into the Colosseum, hearing the sounds of the cheering crowd as they grow impatient for your arrival. Imagine smelling the smells of the wild animals that will be released to attack you in just a few moments in the Colosseum, the very ones that are going to take your life. Imagine seeing thousands of bloodthirsty people eagerly anticipating your death. And imagine this, those whom Mark is writing to did not have to imagine this. Many of them were going to live it. That's why Mark's detail is so important. That's why the detail that we're about to study would have been so meaningful to the original readers. Listen, Mark wants the original readers and he wants us to understand that it was the same Holy Spirit who just peacefully and powerfully descended upon Jesus who is now driving Jesus to a place of suffering. Mark wants them to see that just as they The original readers are surrounded by wild animals, moments from their own death in the arena. Jesus, too, was surrounded by wild animals in this great hour of temptation. Therefore, I think Mark's point in his passage to both the original readers and to us today is this. When the pressures of temptations arise... Remember how how Christ resisted Satan's lies. When the pressures of temptations arise, remember how Christ resisted Satan's lies. Let's take a moment before we begin unpacking each word and each detail of these verses. Let's take a moment and pray, asking for God's help. Father, we just come in this moment and just ask you simply, we pray a prayer from your word. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first point this morning is the proving ground. Verses 12 and 13. What we observe from The opening words of this section is that it was the same Holy Spirit who just peacefully and powerfully descended on Jesus in the form of a dove at his baptism who is now, as Mark says, driving him out into the wilderness. Mark says this in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We just studied this text. 
Last week, we know that we know that what's happening in that text is that the Spirit is anointing Jesus. He's setting him apart for the work and the ministry that he's going to do. The ministry for the next three years of what he's going to do and the healing and the casting out. The, the miraculous ministry that he's going to have. So wait a minute. Why in the world is the Spirit who just set him apart for that ministry with people now driving him in a direction away from people? Why is he not driving him towards the people? Why is he driving him into the wilderness? Well, the Spirit is driving Jesus out into the wilderness because, as we've already said, this was precisely the place of Israel's greatest failure in the Old Testament. When we were talking about John the Baptist and his ministry in the wilderness, we brought this up. We discussed the wilderness. How following the event of the Exodus, this, this pinnacle moment, the most climactic moment in the entire Old Testament, the Exodus of God's people where they were in slavery for 400 years and God comes in power. He comes miraculously and he delivers them from their slavery. But following this climactic Huge, high moment in Old Testament history, there is the lowest moment in Old Testament history. As the people leave the land of Egypt, they go into the wilderness. And they are supposed to be passing through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. But on their way to the promised land, they are tested and they fail. They are tested. Will they obey God? Will they listen to God? Will they trust God? He has been powerful. Will they believe him again? He's been powerful in the past. Will he be powerful in the present? They don't believe him, and they fail. And as a result, they are left to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It, the wilderness was the location of Israel's greatest failure in the Old Testament. <laughs> but Jesus is the better Israel. Jesus is the better Israel. Jesus is the true Son of God. Jesus is the second Adam. He is and will succeed where they failed. So, what exactly is happening to Jesus in the wilderness? Well, Mark tells us in verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days. I mean, you, do you see how symbolic all of this is? He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, in our next point, we're going to unpack Jesus' temptation a bit more, referencing both the authors, Matthew and Luke, to get some more detail but for now, I want to repeat this point for the third time this morning. It was the same Holy Spirit who just set Jesus apart for ministry, who is now sending Jesus into battle, sending Jesus into the wilderness. And this should remind us, friends, that though the Spirit will never lead us to a place of temptation, he will lead us from time to time to a place of testing. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Spirit will never lead us to temptation, 
But he will lead us to a season, a place, a time of testing. Now, Jesus' temptation and testing, as we are reading and studying about in this account, was utterly unique. There are things about Jesus' temptation and Jesus' testing that are totally unique. The reason is, if Jesus fails at any point during his season of temptation and testing, then we no longer have hope for salvation. Our salvation rests on Jesus' sinlessness. But when we walk through temptation and testing, we are not trying to earn or keep our salvation. Instead, God is using these, these seasons of testing to prove the genuineness of our salvation and to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, to conform us to the image of Christ, his son. It's a very important distinction to remember when we come across our seasons of testing, when we encounter temptation, whether we succeed or whether we fail. Our seasons, our moments, our times of tempting and, and testing are not to earn any more of God's favor or to lose any more of God's favor. In Jesus Christ, we are firmly fixed in the unchanging favor and love of God. Jesus' season of temptation validates his qualification to save us. Whereas my seasons of testing work out my salvation. And listen, friends, I think in any time we talk about this text, and any time we talk about Jesus going away in isolation, we should remember that Jesus went into isolation to win our salvation. We should not attempt to repeat what he's already accomplished. Sin and shame are always seeking to isolate God's people. Sin and shame are always seeking tools in the devil's hands to drive us to isolation. But listen, friends, we should not be trying to repeat what Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. Isolation is never the answer for a renewal of spiritual strength. Retreats might be, but purposeful isolation is never an answer for renewal of spiritual strength. Community and confession of sin are God's ordained means from his word to be means to strengthen us in our walk with the Lord, to strengthen us in our spirits. So, friend, let me ask you, are you in a season of testing? Are you in a season of testing? I just encourage you, don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Remember this fact. It is the same Holy Spirit who filled you and who sealed you when you came to faith in Jesus, who is now seen in his sovereign plan and goodwill for your life. 
he has seen fit to put you in a season of testing so that your heart and your motives and your life might be more conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And anytime he does this, it is a loud cry from heaven. God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those he loves. Trust him, friend. That leads to our second point this morning. Wielding the word. Verse 13. Well, this past week, as I was at the offices of Loving Choices, a a ministry that I get to be a part of every week where I minister to young dads who are expecting children, a place that I get to meet with dads and encourage them in this calling of fatherhood they're, they're about to embark in. Well, as I was at the offices of Loving Choices on Wednesday, I was presented with temptation, and I failed. Being the Christmas season... The staff brought in all the sugar and all the sweets that you could imagine. An entire table was full of cookies and hot chocolate and cinnamon-coated Chex Mix and chocolate-covered almonds, and the list goes on and on. And as I passed by, I thought to myself, Matt, don't do it. Don't do it. You're going to regret it tomorrow. You're going to regret it tomorrow. But the buffet of sinful indulgences prevailed, and I succumbed to their persuasive powers as I piled on a plate full of sugar goodies, not once, but twice on Wednesday, twice throughout the day. Now, listen, friends, of course, I'm being playful, but the question emerges from this situation. How can I resist temptation when sin is laid out like a dessert on a buffet line? Well, that's the purpose of this point. Mark tells us that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days being tempted by Satan. And both the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke adds some more detail that I find to be helpful at this point. So keeping your place in Mark chapter 1, flip back with me to Matthew chapter 4. Flip back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew 4, he tells us in verse 2 that during these 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus was fasting. He adds a detail right there for us in, in these opening verses. Jesus was fasting and he was Hungry. Right there. Right there where Jesus was weakest, Satan appeared and offered him relief. So how do you resist Satan when he offers you relief in the area that you desire it most? How do you resist Satan when he comes in the hour of temptation? How do you resist Satan in the area where you desire relief the most? He's not bad at his job. He's very good 
at his job. He comes to Jesus offering him relief in the area where he is weakest. He comes offering him relief. Eat this food because you're so hungry. He says in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now Satan, Satan has ears. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He's finding out things as quickly as we are. He knows no more millisecond about the future than you and I do. And that's really good news. So he hears the reports that the Son of God arrived and was just baptized by John in the river. And that, and that the Son of God heard a voice from heaven, heard the Father saying, This is my Son. In whom I am well pleased. So he prepares for battle. He crafts a temptation designed to cause Jesus to stumble. But I think this is so inspiring. I think this is so manly, if you will. Instead of waiting on Satan to come to him... The Spirit drives Jesus, our fearless leader, our fearless Savior, to meet him on his turf. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's the kind of Jesus that I love. He is not afraid of anything. He doesn't sit back in his lazy chair waiting for Satan to come to him to tempt him. He says, I'll go to your house. I'm going to knock down the door of your front door into your living room, and I'm going to I'm going to dominate you on your domain. The Spirit drives our fearless leader to meet him on his turf. And now, Satan comes with thousands of years of experience at this very thing. He's a master of his craft, if you will. Master of the craft of temptation. He was successful with his strategy in Genesis Chapter 3, when he came to Adam and Eve and asked, did God really say? He was successful in causing Israel to stumble in the wilderness as they put God to the test. Would he be successful again? Imagine the suspense. Imagine the suspense of all the heavenly beings taking part in this scene, in this scenario, watching in, in this hour of temptation. Every person that has been raised up in the past, in this moment when Satan has come, have failed. Adam and Eve in the most perfect situation. You talk about the Garden of Eden, this is not Satan's domain. This is God's domain. They're in that garden where everything is safe, everything is secure. They fail. Then you think about Israel when they have just witnessed God performing miracles and wonders, driving them out of the land of slavery. You think, will they succeed? No, they failed. So you imagine here, Jesus has just been declared the Son of God. And the angels are watching in. 
Will he succeed? Yes, he will succeed. Jesus, when tempted by Satan, wielded the word and quoted scripture back to him in Matthew chapter 4 saying, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is doing so much in this moment. Well, one thing he is doing for sure is he is, he is modeling for us how to fend off this mighty foe when he comes to us in the hour, in the minutes, and in the moments of temptation. Jesus models a reliance on the written word of God to be his guide. Matthew tells us that Satan is not through. Now he takes our Savior, verse 5, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan's trying to adapt. The first attempt failed, but he is not so easily discouraged. He doesn't attack once, fail, and leave. He's not so easily discouraged. He comes back with evolved warfare tactics. He's quoting scripture to Jesus. He's quoting God's word To Jesus. He's trying to wield the word to Jesus. And so since he's quoting scripture, how did Jesus know that it wasn't God? How did Jesus know that it wasn't God? Did he rely on Satan's appearance? Sort of a having a prong in hand and horns on the top of his head. Oh, I see you now. I won't believe anything. No, the text never says that. How did he know? Well, amazingly, he relies again on his knowledge of Scripture, which reminds him, as Matthew says in verse 7, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, with one last attack, Matthew tells us in verses 8 and 9 that Satan takes Jesus to a high place and promises to give him all the world, to give him the kingdoms and all of their glory. All he needs to do is fall down and worship this demonic influence. But Jesus once again relies on God's word to resist the devil. And he says this in verse 10, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Friend, let me ask you an obvious but applicable question at this point. Do you have enough of God's word stored in your heart that you could wield the word to to fend off Satan in a moment a minute, or an hour of temptation. The word itself, a test, 
It is self-attesting. It attests to us that it is sufficient to resist, to fend off, and to fight temptation. Psalm 119 says this, I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So friend, if your adversary comes to you and tempts you to despair over anything in life, Quote back to him, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If he comes tempting you to gossip and slander and bitterness in life, say back to him with authority, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1. Put away all malice and all envy and all hypocrisy and deceit and slander. Instead, speak the truth in love. If he comes tempting you to look at inappropriate images online, say to him, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, my sanctification, that I abstain from sexual immorality. The lips of the forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood. Do you know enough scripture that if he comes in that moment of temptation that you have a sword to pull out and to wield against his threats? See, listen, friends. He comes where we are weakest and tempts you at that point. He comes where we are most susceptible, where we are weakest. He knows the kinks in our armor. He knows where we fail. That's where he comes. That's where he attacks. That's where he tries to send his fiery darts. But when the pressures of temptations arise, remember how Christ resisted Satan's lies and wield the word to fend him off. That leads to our third and final point this morning, resting in the Redeemer, verse 13, resting in the Redeemer. In this point, I want to draw attention to our Lord's success on our behalf in this dark hour of temptation. So flip back to Mark chapter 1. Mark says, in conclusion of this trial in Jesus' life, in verse 13, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Mark has the original readers in mind when he writes these words, that Jesus was with the wild animals. He's the only gospel that adds that detail, and there's a reason for it. His audience would have immediately related his audience would have immediately identified with their Savior. They would have said to themselves, he's been here. They would have said to themselves in that moment, you can imagine, and we're going to hear their stories in heaven. You can imagine in that moment of great temptation, 
when they are tempted to bow their knee to Nero, when they are tempted, their seconds, you have one more second, and being fed to the lions in the arena before 10,000 people in this Colosseum, this humiliating death, you won't have to endure it. They would have said, I've read the gospel of Mark. I heard my local church pastor preaching this text. Jesus has been here. He's walked this way before I have. He's endured the threats of the wilderness. He has been with the wild animals. And yet, he resisted temptation. He did not turn back. He did not sin. He did not bow the knee to Satan, to the influences, the demonic influences that were speaking to him. You see, this place where Jesus was tempted, this wilderness place, if you've seen the Lion King, and I think there's a good chance you've all seen the Lion King, this place should be viewed like the scene where the hyenas lived. That terrifying place when you were a kid and you're watching and you cover your eyes. It's so dark, it's so dead, it's so frightening, it's so desolate, it's so abandoned. It's an illustration of all of these things, a God-forsaken place where Satan has dominion. This is the elephant graveyard. This is Satan's turf. <laughs> but Jesus walked right into the arena. Walked right into the arena where Satan rules and reigns. And he kicked him in the teeth. He kicked him in the teeth. He dominated on Satan's domain. And Mark wants me and you to make this connection. Wherever you are most tempted, wherever I am most tempted, Jesus was also tempted and resisted. When sin says, you are alone, you are isolated, you are the exception. You say, no. No. He has walked this way before I have. He has endured and resisted sin's temptation. If you've ever studied the life of Martin Luther, the great reformer, you know that he had a hypersensitivity to the influence of Satan in his life. There are so many stories of where Luther perceived the influence of Satan and would throw objects in the direction of where he thought Satan was in the room. Whether it was his ink pen, whether it was a chair, whether it was anything, he was throwing objects in that direction. But what he most commonly did, even as he threw things, is he said things. Do you say things to Satan? Do you say things to demonic influences when they are tempting you to sin? Or do you just sort of act like 
They're not there. You must say something back to them. You must say, no, 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 you listen to me. You're commanding me to listen to you. But listen, my Lord has authority over you. It's your turn to listen to me. So take your seat for a moment and give ear to what I'm saying. You say I'm, a, I'm isolated and I'm alone because of this situation that I'm being tempted by, that I'm the only one who has this particular temptation, this particular problem, and therefore it means God can't love me or has redeemed me. You know what? You're a liar. You always have been a liar. So sit down. My Lord has always, my Lord walked before me. My Lord was tempted at this very juncture of where I am being tempted. And guess what? He beat you. He dominated you on your domain. He resisted you. He never sinned. He kicked you in your teeth. That's what my, some of my quiet times look like. Friends, you have to talk like that. I want you to talk like that. You have to fight for your soul. You have to fight for affections for your Savior. You have to fight for holiness. You have to fight for righteousness. You have to fight to to fend him off. Now why else would Matthew, Mark, and Luke include Jesus' temptation? Why include this detail? Well, it was first to show us that Jesus is the better Adam. He is the true Israel. He doesn't fail where everyone else has failed before or after him. But in addition to that, these authors told us about Jesus' temptation in order to draw us in close to the Savior. They told us about his temptation in order to show us Jesus' solidarity with his people. I'm going to prove that for you. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. He says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, you see? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What Mark is teaching us and what the book of Hebrews is expounding upon, is that Jesus is not a far-off, unrelatable Savior. No, he has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. And because of that, here's how that should affect your life. Because of this, he should be our first place of refuge and retreat during moments of weakness and temptation to sin. When we are tempted to sin, 
That is when He sympathizes with us the most. When we are tempted to sin, that is when He sympathizes with you the most. Not the least. What is the voice in your mind telling you at that moment of temptation? This is the moment when He sympathizes with you the least. But that's a lie. Hebrews 4 says, this is the moment when He sympathizes with me the most. Therefore, I should be drawn to him like a magnet, an irresistible magnet, a place of refuge and retreat during this hour of temptation. He bids us to come to him and to find our help and our hope in him alone. So friend, where are you tempted to sin? Don't avoid Jesus. Don't listen to the lie of shame that seeks to isolate, seeks to isolate you from solidarity with the Savior. Run to Christ. Run to Him quickly by faith. Run to Him in prayer. Run to Him by quoting Scripture. Run to Him by yielding the shield of faith. Run to Him and hold fast to the confident confession that His resistance to temptation is what made your salvation possible. Finally, Mark concludes by saying, and the angels were ministering to Him. Just as the angels led the people of Israel through the wilderness and again ministered to Elijah by bringing him food in the wilderness, so too do they meet and minister to Jesus following this hour of temptation. Friend, I think Mark wants us to witness what I'm calling real relief. Mark wants us to witness what's on the other side of resistance to temptation. It's not a lifelong, it doesn't always feel like that hour and fury, windstorm of temptation. There is relief coming. Mark wants us to see real relief. Satan comes promising Jesus relief from his season of testing. He comes offering him relief to his hunger, offering him relief to his humility. He's always been over the world. And now here he is, lowly, born of a virgin in a manger. No one knows him. Satan is offering him relief. I'll give you everything. I'll give you the kingdoms. I'll give you the glory. I'll give you everything. He's giving, offering him relief. But his relief should not be trusted. His relief is not real. Mark is teaching us here what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait on the Lord, He will renew their strength. Friend, if you are in an hour of temptation, do not believe the relief offered by Satan. Do not believe that by turning away from God in His Word that you will find the relief that your soul is longing for. Resist Him and wait on the Lord. 
the relief and the, re- the rest that the Lord brings will far outshine anything that Satan could ever promise or ever deliver. And the angels were ministering to him. What relief. <laughs> what relief on the other side of temptation. Resist him. It won't last forever. Whatever you're going through won't last forever. Resist him. Don't bite into believing the lie that it will last forever. There is God-given and ordained relief coming. Wait on him. Wait on the Lord. He will renew your strength. Friends, we close. I just want to acknowledge that though we're not tempted to turn away from Jesus because of the threat of persecution or death in a coliseum, you might be tempted to turn away from Jesus because of, of an indulgence in gossip at work or watching pornography online or storing bitterness deep in your heart. These are moments and places where we are invited to indulge in sin and tempted to sin. But may God use his preached word today to strengthen us during these hours, moments, and minutes of temptation so that we could resist the devil. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we live in this already but not yet reality where we have the promise of forgiveness of sins, promise of sanctification, that we are sanctified in Christ but yet we are still being sanctified. We are already made perfect in Christ, but yet we are still being made perfect in Christ. And Lord, in that progress, in that process, we have these serious hours of temptation. And I'm so thankful that you sympathize with us, Jesus, in these moments. I just want to ask you, Father, Please give us the grace to run to you, to run to you by faith in all of these moments that the book of Hebrews commands us to hold fast to our confession. Keep us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.